Welcome back, warriors and peacekeepers, to the A Year of War and Peace podcast. The podcast, well, what was it again? Where where we go from War and Peace hero to War and War and Peace, sorry, where we go from War and Peace hero to War and Peace hero in one year flat. There we go. Sorry, I just felt like saying the old intro from back when the podcast was called A Year of War and Peace. Just a little bit of nostalgia for you. I've just cross-posted... Um, over to the A Year of War and Peace subreddit advertising the fact that we are starting a new book in two days um, of Human Bondage by, what's her name, Somerset Morgan. Um, so we might see a few fresh faces in the subreddit, hopefully. A few people might pop over from there and join us for some daily discussions. Today's episode is brought to you by... Um, what's it brought to you by? It's brought to you by a cappuccino, which I'm currently drinking. Uh, it's also brought to you by my Bogan translation of War and Peace. Bogan War and Peace. It's War and Peace. It's the full book. Every single word. It's just got some Boganness to it. Available at andalewis.com. All right. Um, we are talking about book to chapter 40 what is it again three three what that what is that pesky priest up to swim said the mama fish said well if it were today it would be trying to he would be trying to get more subscribers to his youtube channel oh that was a big slurp of a cappuccino <clears throat> gross that was slurpier than i expected but actually, I need another slurp because it was so good. Mm. I'm trying desperately to stay awake right now. Tomorrow I've got a full day of tutoring, which I am very much looking forward to. Um, I think it's about 20 or so primary school kids and I'm tutoring them all day, remotely, you know, online tutoring. Um, but the thing that makes me nervous is, well, I'm always nervous when I start a new school. I get a bit nervous, but um, my sleep cycle has just been so out of whack because I've just been in lockdown and I haven't really needed to be up at any particular time for ages, months. Um, so tomorrow I've got to get up bright and early, sign on, you know, start tutoring in the morning, work through the whole day. And I've just been thinking, man, I don't even know if I can pay attention for that long anymore you know my attention span doesn't last how it used to before this whole isolation thing um and also yeah i've just been sleeping i haven't been sleeping a lot you know i've not been i've just been doing the normal eight hours kind of thing um but there are strange times of the day like i've been going to sleep at four and getting up at you know 11 AM or PM, I'll let you figure that out. <laughs> um, okay, anyway, enough about me. What was I saying? Laura Weistich said, There have been some great criticisms of religion in these last couple of chapters. Julian, Madame de Renal, now this priest. Also, the story keeps getting crazier. It does. I commend Stendhal's ability to amp up the craziness, even in these last few chapters, it's still just spiraling out of control. And it just kicked off at a certain point, did it, didn't it? Like, 
We were about three quarters of the way through the book, and Julian had been a, you know, he'd been an idiot the whole time. That's not like he'd been a bit of a, a, a loose cannon. Loose cannon. He's a loose cannon. Um, but it was about the time with Matilda coming in and all the back and forth with them, that tug of war that they had, that romantic tug of war, um, when the book itself just started to get, or like almost like, cra- almost a bit wacky, almost a bit like comedic. Um, and it's just spiraled from there in a good way, spiraled to a more and more entertaining factor. All right, enough about that. Um, how many chapters in this? 45 or 46? Oh, wow. It's today and tomorrow. Tomorrow's the last chapter. Damn. All right. Uh, okay, chapter 44 goes like this. As soon as he had left, Julian began to weep copiously and wept at the thought of death. Little by little it came to him that if Madame de Renal had been in Bezacon, he might have confessed his weaknesses to her. Just at the moment he was regretting the absence of his adored woman most, he heard Matilda's step, the worst of being in prison. He thought he's not being able to lock one's door. All that Matilda said to him was merely an irritant. She took him that on the day of the trial. Monsieur Valenod, by now with his nomination as prefect in his pocket, had dared make a fool of Monsieur de Filiard and give himself the pleasure of condemning Julian to death. What was your friend thinking of? Monsieur de Filiard asked me just now to stir up the pretty, petty vanities of the bourgeois aristocracy and then attack them. Why mention caste? He showed them what to do in their own political interests. Those boobies hadn't been thinking about that. They were ready to burst into tears. Then the interests of the caste came and blinded them to the horror excuse me, of condemning a man to death. It has to be admitted that Monsieur Sorel is very raw in this kind of business. If we don't succeed in, have, in saving him by means of clemency, his death will be a kind of suicide. Matilda had no need to be careful to guard against telling Julian what she herself hardly suspected, that the Abe de Filier, seeing that Julian was lost, thought it might serve his own ambitions to aspire to be his successor. Almost beside himself with impotent rage and frustration, he told Matilda, Do go along and hear a mass for me, and give me a moment's peace. Matilda, already very jealous of Madame de Renal's visits, and aware of her recent departure, understood the reason for Julian's temper and burst into tears. Her misery was genuine, Julian saw that, and was only the more irritated. He had an overwhelming desire for solitude, yet how could he obtain it? At last Matilda, having tried to soften him with all the arguments she could think of, left him in peace. But almost at the same moment Fouque arrived. I need to be alone, he told this faithful friend, and when he saw him hesitate, I am making a draft for my plea for clemency. And as to the rest, if you want to gratify me, don't ever talk of death. If I have need of any particular services on that day, leave me to mention them first. When at last Julian had gained his solitude, he found himself even more depressed, tremulous than ever, tremulous than ever before. The little strength left to enfeeble spirit had been exhausted, 
in concealing his estate from Mademoiselle de la Mole and Fouque. Towards evening there came a thought to console him. If they had told me of my execution this morning, just at the moment death seemed so hideous to me, the eye of the public would have been a spur to glory. Maybe my gait would have been a little wooden, like that of a nervous fop entering a salon, and a few perceptive people, if there are any in the provinces, would have seen would have been able to guess at my weakness, but no one would have seen it. He felt himself relieved of a part of his misery. Just now I am a coward, he chanted to himself over and again, but no one will know of it. The following day, an event that was almost more disagreeable awaited him. For a long time his father had been announcing that he would visit. That day, before Julian was awake, the hoary-headed old carpenter appeared in his cell. Julian felt weak. He expected the most wounding reproaches. To complete his misery, he was that morning feeling a sharp pang of guilt at not having loved his father. Mere chance, he said to himself, while the turnkey was tidying his cell a little, has placed us side by side upon the earth, and we have done almost as much harm to each other as we possibly could. He is coming to deliver the final blow at the moment of death. Immediately, no witnesses were present. The old man's stern harangue began. Julian was unable to restrain his tears. What shameful weakness, he said to himself furiously. Now he will go around everywhere, exaggerating my lack of courage. What triumph for Valenod and for all those dreary hypocrites who reign in Verriez. They are very big in France. They combine all possible social advantages. Up until now, I could at least tell myself that. Although they get all the money, it is true, and honours accumulate all around them, yet it is I who possess nobility at, of heart. And now here is a witness whom everyone will believe, and who will testify to the whole of Verriers, and who will exaggerate it, how weak I have been in the face of death. I will have been a coward in an ordeal with which everyone is familiar Julian was close to despair. He did not know how to be rid of his father and to put off a sham in a way that could fool so astute an old man seemed to him, excuse me, just then quite beyond his powers. His mind ran rapidly over the possibilities. I've made some savings, he cried suddenly. This inspired, remar in, this inspired remark completely altered the old man's expression and Julian's situation. How should I dispose of them? Julian continued more calmly. The effect he had produced had dispelled all feelings of inferiority. The ancient carpenter burned with desire not to let slip any part of this money, some of which Julian seemed to want to give to his brothers. He spoke at length with passion. Then Julian was able to play with him. Ah, well, the Lord inspires me in regard to my will. I shall give the... I shall give a thousand francs to each of my brothers and the rest to you. Very good, replied the old man. The rest is due to me. But if God has been merciful in touching your heart and you want to die a good Christian, you should pay your debts. There is still outstanding the costs of your feed and upbringing which I advanced to you and which you don't think of. Yum. Yum coffee. <clears throat> Uh, so there is the love of a father, Julian could only repeat to himself, his spirit reduced to tatters, when at last he was alone again. Soon the jailer reappeared. 
Monsieur, after the family has visited, I always bring my guests a bottle of good champagne wine. It is a trifle dear, six francs a bottle, but it cheers you up wonderfully. Bring three glasses, replied Julian with childish enthusiasm, and ask in a couple of those prisoners I hear, and ask in a couple of those prisoners I hear can walking in the cloister. And ask in, uh, and ask in a couple of those prisoners I hear can walking in the cloister. I, I can't read that. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how to read that sentence. Bring three glasses, replied Julian, with childish enthusiasm, and ask in a couple of those prisoners I hear can walking in the cloister. I hear can walk. I, I think it's meant to be I can hear walking in the cloister. The jailer led into recidivists, just about to be sent back to the galleys. These were two sprightly villains, really remarkable for their cleverness, courage and nerve. If you slip me twenty francs, said one of them to Julian, I will tell you the story of my life in detail. It is delicious. When will you lie to me? asked Julian. Not a bit of it, he answered. My mate there, who is jealous of the twenty, would betray me if I told a lie. His story was abominable. It was a display of courageous spirit, in which only one passion had survived, the passion for money. After they had left, Julian was no longer the same man. All his rage against himself had vanished, his atrocious suffering poisoned by the pusillanimity that had preyed on him since Madame de Renal's departure, had transformed into melancholy. Sorry, one moment. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, oh dear. Oh, golly. Sorry, I was just marking a bit of that book that I wanted to go back to. Uh, after they had lived, Julian... Julian was no longer the same man. All his rage against him had vanished. His atrocious suffering, poisoned by the pusillanimity and a prayed in Madame de Renal's departure, transformed into melancholy. As I become less deceived by appearances, he said to himself, I would have come to realise that the Paris salons are full of honest folk like my father, or clever rogues like these birds from the galleys. They were absolutely right. Salon frequenters never get up in the morning with the urgent question, how am I going to eat? They boast of their own uprightness. Then, when called on to a jury, proudly condemn a man who has stolen a silver fork because he feels he is dying of hunger. But when they are at court, and it is a question of winning or losing some ministerial post, my upright salon dwellers lower themselves to crimes exactly parallel to those that the need to eat inspires in those two convicts. There is no such thing as a natural right. The phrase is only an antiquated stupidity, very well fitted to the public prosecutor who hounded me the other day, and whose ancestors was in, ancestor was enriched by one of Louis XIV's expropriations. There is only a right when there is a law forbidding something or other on pain of punishment. Prior to the law, there is nothing natural but the strength of the lion or the needs of a creature who is hungry, who is cold, in a word, necessity. No, the people who get the honours are not more than the scoundrels who have been lucky enough not to be caught red-handed. The, the prosecutor that society unleashed on me owes his riches to some vileness, 
I did commit a deadly assault and am justly condemned, but that single deed apart, the Valinod type who condemned me is a hundred times more poisonous to society. Very well then, added Julian, sadly, but without rancor. Despite his avarice, my father is worth more than all those kinds of men. He has never loved me. I am just about to make his cup overflow by disgracing him with a shameful death. This dread of needing money, this exaggerated view of men's malice that is labelled avarice, makes him find prodigious matter for consolation in the sum of the three or four hundred louis that I will be able to leave him. One day, on a Sunday after dinner, he will display his gold to all the envious eyes of Verriers. At this price, he, his look will challenge them. At this price, which of you wouldn't be delighted to have a son sent to the guillotine? Julian's philosophy might very well be valid, but it was of a nature to make him welcome death. So, past five long days, he was considerate and gentle to Matilda, whom he saw to be in a state of the most acute jealous exasperation. One evening he did think seriously of killing himself. His spirit was demoralised by the deep misery into which he had been thrown by Madame de Renal's departure. Nothing gave him pleasure any more, neither in real life nor in his imagination. Lack of exercise had begun to affect his health and to give him the highly strung yet feeble temper of a young German intellectual. <laughs> he was losing the manly pride that, with a vigorous oath, rebuts certain unworthy thoughts like to likely to assail an unhappy soul. I have loved truth. Where is truth? Everywhere hypocrisy, or at least charlatanism, even among the most virtuous, even among the greatest, and his lips curled with distaste. No man cannot put his trust in man. Madame de Dash, when collecting for her poor orphans, told me that a certain prince was about to donate ten louis. It was a lie. But who, what am I saying? Napoleon on St. Helena. Pure charlatanism. Proclamations in favour of the King of Rome. Great God, if I, if a man like that, still more at a time when misfortune should have recalled him sternly to his duty, descends to charlatanism, what can we expect from the rest of the species? Where is truth? In religion? Oh, yes. He went on with a twisted smile of violent scorn in the mouth of Maslon de Frilier Castanide. Perhaps it is to be found in the pure forms of Christianity where the priests are no more paid than were the apostles. But St. Paul was rewarded by the pleasures of command, of preaching, of making himself talked about. Ah, if only there were a true religion. Fool that I am, I see a Gothic cathedral, ancient stained glass, my vulnerable heart conjures, conjures, <clears throat> up the figure of a priest within that window. My soul embraces it. My soul has need of it. What do I meet but a fop with greasy hair, a chevalier de bourgeois without the charm? But a true priest, a Mazelon, a Fenelon, well, Mazelon cons consecrated Dubois, St. Simeon's memoirs have spoiled Fenelon for me, but even so, a true priest with him there would be a space in the world where feeling souls could unite. We would not be all isolated from one another. This good father could talk to us of God. But of what God? Not the God of the Bible, a petty despot, cruel and avid for revenge. Rather, the God of Voltaire, just, good, infinite. He was disturbed by all his memories of the Bible that he knew by heart. But how, whatever, whenever two or three are gathered together... How to believe in that mighty name, God, after the frightful way our priests have abused it. 
to live in isolation. What torture. I am getting out of control and becoming unjust, said Julian to himself, striking his brow. I am in isolation here in the cell, but I haven't existed in isolation in the world. I possessed a powerful idea of duty. The duty I lay down for myself, rightly or wrongly, has been like the trunk of a sturdy tree against which I linked during the storm. I wavered. I was shaken, but I wasn't swept away. It is damp. It is the damp air of this cell that makes me dwell on isolation, but why am I still a hypocrite while I am cursing hypocrisy? It is not death, nor the cell, nor the dank air. It is Madame de Renal's absence that is crushing me. If in very years I was obliged to live several whole weeks shut up in the cellars of her house in order to see her, would I have any complaints? If influence of my contemporaries is too much for me, he said aloud with a bitter laugh, alone, talking to myself, two steps away from death, I am still a hypocrite, or a nineteenth century. A hunter fires a shot in the forest, his prey falls, he darts forward to seize it, his brute strikes an anthill two feet high, destroys the ants, burrows, scatters the ants and their eggs far and wide. The most philosophical of the ants is quite unable to understand this black mass, immense, terrifying, the hunter's boot, that suddenly smashed into their world with incredible speed, preceded by an astounding noise, accompanied by flashes of reddish fire. Such a death, life, eternity, simple phenomena, for those with organs of sense vast enough to comprehend them. Cool line. A Mayfair is born at nine o'clock in the morning, on a fine summer's day, and dies at five in the afternoon. How should it understand the word night? Granted five hours, more hours of existence, he would see and understand what night is. The same with me. I'm going to die at the age of 23. Let me have five more years of life to spend with Madame de Renal. He started to laugh like Mephistopheles. What idiocy to discuss this grand problem. First, I am being a hypocrite as though there was someone here to hear me. Second, I am failing to live and to love when I have so few days of life left. Alas, Madame de Renal is absent from me. Perhaps her husband will not let her come back to Bezacon and go on dishonouring herself. That is what is isolating me, not the absence of God, who is just, or good, or all-powerful, never ill-willed, not at all thirsty for vengeance. Ah, if such a one existed, alas, I would cast myself at his feet. I have deserved death, I would say to him. But, great God, good God, merciful God, give me back her whom I adore. By then the night was far advanced. After an hour or two of peaceful slumber, Fouque came in. Julian felt himself to be strong and resolute, like a man who sees clearly into his own soul. All right, there we go. Another chapter down. Julian, Julian, Julian. The end is nigh for you, I fear, my friend. All right, have your say over at the subreddit. Oh, my gosh. Ooh. I'm nearly asleep. <laughs> um, thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.